Hello and welcome to the Super 70 Podcast, special edition with Paul Emick, Star Wars Part 2. Welcome back to another special edition of the Super 70 Podcast. It is unlikely that I will ever get a chance to record a commentary for any Star Wars film, so I think this is healthy for me and my listeners to knock out. Paul somehow decided it wasn't that bad sitting in my cramped office slash studio talking about our favorite subject for a couple of hours, so he decided to come back and, well... I guess he's a glutton for punishment. This episode, we're doing the rundown on Gareth Edwards' Rogue One, which by now we know is only two-thirds his movie, and Ron Howard's Solo. What is so right with Rogue One, and where does Solo go wrong? What did we expect out of these two non-saga projects? And what in the hell did we get? Join Paul and I as we run down the rabbit hole discussing Tony Gilroy, The Weakest Link, the dangers of miscasting, and what the future might hold for us once John Favreau finally takes control of Lucasfilm. How's it going, Paul? Going pretty good. It's been a stressful few weeks at work. Yeah, the virus is uh, kicking a lot of people's ass, and right. However, last weekend was it? I saw Goodfellas. Okay, in the theater on the big screen. Right, five dollars at the Studio Movie Grill. Right, and they did the Dark Knight Rises, same place. So I'm thinking about going tomorrow. Gotcha. Okay. Um, they sent me free tickets. Nice. I'm a member of the Studio Movie Grill. Cinemark and AMC all at the same time mm-hmm. because I'm just that much of a nerd. No, I understand. So I understand. Got to cover your bases. There you go. No, I did. I did drive by the Cinemark today on the freeway and I saw that it was open. They they have something similar to where they've got some favorites. Right. Um, you know, I saw Empire Strikes Back. No. Yeah. On, on the big, the big screen? screen. Five dollars. So, oh my God! Yeah. Where it, what, it, at Cinemark? Yeah, I don't know what the times are, but I um, I did see because because we're a member of the Cinemark as well. So so they're letting Rewards Club members, um, you know, giving them a couple free tickets to kind of ease them back in. Of yeah. course, there's no real movies to see. Hollywood's holding all the good stuff until right. it's safe to have uh, a packed house. Um, but um, they did have this thing for ninety nine dollars. You can have a private showing. Yeah, just have a whole theater. You pick from a list of twenty movies. Um, you know, all of them. Yeah, some classics, some that have come out in the last couple of years. I think like Jurassic Park's on there, stuff like that. Uh, I think Raiders of the Lost Ark is on there as well. Uh, but um, yeah, for for hundred bucks, you can have the whole mm-hmm. whole cinema. Uh, well, to so your they're side. they're directly con- uh, competing with Studio Movie Grill. Yeah, because they have the same thing, but it's two hundred dollars. Oh, okay. But it's, of course, when Luke and I went to go see Goodfellas, there were a grand total of six people in that theater. Right, anyway, so you're so. probably gonna. I'm probably going to do the thing, right. the but same the, thing, yeah. But that would be something, particularly for ninety nine dollars. I'd be completely, oh sure, you know, in a in a non virus world, I'd do that. Oh yeah, yeah. When absolutely. I, when I lived in Calgary, um, Cineplex Odeon, uh, the Cineplex chain in Canada is probably the largest, at least in Western Canada, and they had a deal where you could uh, rent out the theater for birthday parties, mm-hmm. 
and they would uh, hook up your Xbox. Oh, nice. To, to the digital projector. So they had they had kids having, I mean, people would invite their entire, so I think it was about 400 Canadian dollars. Right. People were inviting their entire class. Yeah. Right? Because to, to fill up 250 seats, everybody in sixth grade was there. Right. You know, Canadian schools being much smaller than, than ours are. Right. Right. Oh, okay. So I'm, I'm excited about what's back on the screen. Yeah. And yeah. I'd like to see the Dark Knight. Sure. Drive across town to see that maybe. Right. Um, so we'll we'll see what's what's up and it's nice that they're kind of slowly easing back in. Right. And, and have you felt safe going back to like the, the the ones that you've seen? Yeah, with six people in a theater with with no. I mean, there's more people working at the theater than the people who are going to see the movie. I feel completely safe. Right. And I do I do feel that they're they're wiping everything down. But you know, if you if you listen to I don't want to get controversial. If you listen to Dr. Fauci, and I know right. there are people who are not fans of his, uh, this is a respiratory illness. Mm-hmm. And it's it's passing. I don't want to get into the science, but it, it seems to be passing from person to person. Right. So masks are important. Right. But you're not necessarily going to get it from a surface. Right. And and I think if they do assign seating, then you know they know which seat you have to they have to clean. Yeah. They don't have to clean necessarily every, every single, single seat, seat in the theater. Yeah. And well the Cinemark app will will only let you select certain seats. Like it'll x out like an entire okay. row or every other seat or something. Studio Movie Girl they just they just have signs like no one in this row. So I had to go back and say I got seats in a row that says no one like it doesn't matter. You're gotcha. One of four people who are <laughs> here, you know. Yeah. Not that big of a deal. I did see some, we went to go see, I don't remember if it was Temple of Doom or The Last Crusade, and there were some uh, wackos up in the front row, mm-hmm. you know, like uh, my age with, with his wife or girlfriend. Right. And I was just thinking, why are you doing that to yourself? You know, we loved doing that at 12 years old. I, yeah. I guess we thought it was a thing. Of course, we didn't have stadium seating back then. We had that, that kind of gradual slope to the theater. So um, I guess it did feel somewhat a little bit more intense, depending on the movie. The things uh, we enjoy now. Yeah, exactly. St- stadium seating. Yeah. Um, so before we get into Star Wars, and we're expecting this to be a short episode because we're only discussing two movies, two, two right. movies to, to wrap up, you know, the saga, so to speak. Right. Yeah. Okay, so I briefly discussed this with, with Dave, and I'm going to lead into a story I read on Variety magazine this week, or Variety's website rather, because nobody reads magazines anymore. Right. I went to Paramount Studios uh, in March, the week before California shut down, and my son and I were in the the lobby before they take you to the the studio tour, and they had a bunch of pictures on the wall, and each picture had a story next to it, and of course it it talked about the the pseudo founder of uh, of Paramount Studios, Adolf Zucker. Mm -hmm. So Adolf Zucker. 19 teens he actually was had another studio bought paramount liked the name uh, adopted the name took over the studio grounds and he's the one who came up with the stars around the mountain okay each star represented a, a actual movie star that was contracted and the stars changed over time until one day they decided to keep it i think at 36 stars so during the 1919 pandemic uh, Zucker actually, you know, all the theaters closed down, of course. Zucker sent out agents that worked for him to buy up uh, the majority of the 
movie chains, mm-hmm. and and the most of them were independent except for Lowe's theater chain, which is still around today. Right. And uh, he, he he bought those theaters after about ten or twelve months, so they would be at rock bottom prices, and people were just dying to get rid of their movie theaters. Right. And then when it was all over, he had a completely integrated system where he controlled the means of production, the distribution, and the exhibition of his product. So this meant that the Warner Brothers had to actually kowtow. They had to come down out of the mountains and go to Hollywood and ask Adolf Zuger to display their movies in his theaters. Wow. So, of course, that led to Warner Brothers saying, well, we need a theater chain, so our product is safe. And then MGM did the same. And then if you wanted to go see Gone with the Wind, you had to go to an MGM-owned theater. Gotcha. Okay. Right? So if you wanted to see a certain product, the biographs were all owned by... Um, you know, pick one of the majors, Fox Studios. You had to go to a Fox Studios. You know, that ended with a, a lawsuit in the late '40s, early '50s. It basically, was trust busting, and it broke them all up. Mm-hmm. I bring that up because of this article I read recently, which was that that trust was broken uh, a couple years ago by another lawsuit that actually Netflix filed. Okay, so. <clears throat> Netflix was caught in a, a very strange situation where they had films like Roma, which was nominated for Best Picture and is right. is in the Criterion Collection, that a, a lot of people just dearly love, and they think it's a full-blown art film, and I completely agree. And it ran in the circuits, and there a lot of people were in the Academy were really pissy about allowing it in because it was a Netflix film. And sure. to them, a streaming service is not it's a, a TV studio. movie. Right, yeah. Right. And... Um, you know, what's the difference between Netflix and TV? I mean, you can have that argument. You know, uh, the big the big pisser for me was The Other Side of the Wind. Mm-hmm. Um, 1973 film, Orson Welles shot. It was supposed to be his second to last film. It, he died in 85. It was never released. It was caught up in an endless, amazing round of lawsuits that went on for 30 years that involved French law, you know, art belongs to the artist, and American law, which is everything is owned by the children of or the next of kin. And if you ever get a chance to get into it, you should, but it's, it is amazingly complicated. And basically Frank Marshall, the famous Hollywood producer responsible for Jurassic Park and a thousand other movies, right? Uh, who's actually Kathleen Kennedy's husband, mm-hmm. Kathleen Kennedy of who's Lucas currently Lynch. running yeah. Lucasfilm. Uh, he brokered a deal with Netflix to pay off all the interested parties, um, Orson Welles' daughters and his, his surviving uh, ex-girlfriend, and they they brought The Other Side of the Wind to Netflix. Okay. Uh, they held it from, from screening, uh, from streaming, I should say, because they wanted to put it in con. Well, you know what the French have to say about Netflix. Mm-hmm. That wasn't going to happen. Right. And the the Hollywood establishment got pretty snooty because they think, well... If it's not showing in a theater, then you can't present it to the Academy. Right. Which I think is just complete bullshit. Sure. So this this has led Netflix to actually purchase a, a theater in New York. And the old Egyptian theater, which is on Hollywood Boulevard, one right. block east of uh, Grauman's Chinese Theater, and one block east of the El Capitan Theater on Hollywood Boulevard, where, where Citizen Kane premiered. Right. And and they they renovated it and everything and the the question is uh, you know can a studio own a movie theater anymore right and so they they sued saying you know we we want to we want to exhibit stuff how how can we 
apply for these awards if we can exhibit them. Exactly, because this play, what, one week in L.A., one week in New York? Right, yeah. 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 The Other Side of the Wind, maybe a week. Yeah. It might run for a day, Yeah, but at least it gets exhibited. Sure. So um, the, the article that came out this week was, uh, it was very interesting because effectively... It was wondering in 10 months who's going to be left standing in Hollywood. Sure. And I read an article last month that said Paramount is probably the first one to call it quits. Gotcha. And uh, Paramount is owned by Viacom. Viacom just might just say the same worth it. Right. And just put it on the auction block. Uh, now, whether someone like Netflix is interested in buying what is left of Paramount I don't know. That seems like a stretch. I don't think Netflix is actually interested in owning anything physical. Probably not. Right. Like, like they're, they're giving away money left and right. It's at some point there's got to be a bottom to their conference. <laughs> right? For yeah. sure. Yeah. And, and if they're giving it to Scorsese to make, yeah, here make a four-hour movie. Oh Go ahead. You know, yeah. yeah. So I, um, I think that's that's where they're spending their money. So I'd, I'd be surprised if they. Did I'd be surprised like that. if that. However, ten months, twelve months. You know, I'm sure that Lowe's theater chain is still going to be around. Mm -hmm. Cinemark, I don't know. Yeah, it's Edward uh, Cinema. I don't know, right? And it it begs the question: If Netflix won that lawsuit, and studios are now allowed to own, I think a minority of of theaters is, sure. is how the Supreme Court decided, or that judge in that case decided. What is what is a minority of cinema? There's five major studios. There always kind of have been. Mm -hmm. um, there's a dozen independents. Is Netflix going to go on a buying spree and just buy up 60% of the theaters like Adolf Zucker did? It's an interesting proposition yeah. of history repeating itself. Right. And I guess, is it the hard asset or is it a catalog or even kind of to what extent? What are they buying with that? Right. Right. So they have the capital. Yeah. They're yeah, they do. Apple. And, you know. and I imagine it's just gone up while the other studios have gone down. So their leverage has probably gone up a little bit, too. Um, yeah, I don't know. I would imagine their subscription service have gone up since the pandemic. I would just guess that. I would think that. Um, I mean, I didn't know that many people who did not own Netflix before the pandemic. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I, I don't know how much room it had to go up. Um, but the, the reality is they're making money when nobody's making any money. Um, so, yeah, that'd be interesting to see. So who's who's your second favorite streaming service right now? Right now, um, you know, we've got Hulu Premium, um, which, which seems to, because honestly, we've been streaming more TV. I think maybe we're at a point where our kids are teenagers. We're kind of showing them some shows that we enjoyed watching uh, when we were in college or just out of college or while they were really young. Um, and, and so if, if I can't find it on Netflix, I've been able to find it on Hulu. That, that's it's kind of been my thing. But then again, it, it has been mostly TV. Uh, we haven't been streaming a ton of movies. So I don't know if that's just kind of a shift in our habits. If, if we kind of like the serialized storytelling, that long format, uh, tell it over a, a season or multiple seasons. Um, but but I'd probably say Hulu, just from a, availability of, of TV content. If you had to pick a show, well, what are you showing your kids? Right now, we're showing them Lost. Okay. Okay. Yeah. J.J. Abrams. I have yeah. never seen Lost. My wife is a huge fan. She loves it. It's... Um, you know, without giving too much away, I, I think it's it's a very exciting first couple of seasons. Um, asks a lot of big questions. 
um, offers up a whole lot of mythology. So for mm -hmm. fans who are into that, that kind of immersive experience to, to, to kind of talk about it and, and think about it and wonder, um, it, it's, it's pretty appealing. I don't know that it quite sticks to landing. Um, so, I mean, I think if, if, if you were to ask me now in 2020, is it worth going back and watching six years of Lost? My answer might be different than it would be in, in 2004 or five when it started. Um, but the kids seem to be enjoying it so far. Um, you know, we're only in season two. So I know that that kind of what the fuck moment will come, <laughs> you know, as they start kind of explaining some of the mysteries in, in season four and five. And, and I don't know if they'll be happy with all the answers and all the explanations. But, you know, it's been fun. Uh, how often is Evangeline Lilly in that? I understand she's one she's of a regular. Yeah, she's so a regular. she's probably in almost every episode. Yeah, I, I was comp really unfamiliar with her until Ant Man. Right, right. Which was she hadn't done a lot of movies. I mean, she did Hurt Locker, the Hurt Locker, and that's about all I can See, think of. I'm a big fan of the Hurt Locker. And I don't remember her role, so I'm gonna yeah. have to go back and revisit that. But sure. The last uh, chat I had with Dave Anderson, we we talked about uh, Catherine Bigelow. Okay. And how she's an under underappreciated filmmaker. Sure. And, and I think uh, I I wouldn't call it shitting on her, but you know, uh, people just jammer on about uh, James Cameron way too much. Right. And, and they don't give her her due. I think. That's but, fair. Uh, I did see. I don't know if it was six months ago, and or how long ago it was, but it was it was regarding uh, uh, Lily and her presence in Lost, and it was. And of course, we live in a different time now, the, the Me Too generation, and Black Lives Matter, and all of that, and and she did an interview where she she complained about uh, a, a shot in in the Lost where she had to wear a bikini when she was walking around. I don't know if it was for five minutes or the whole episode, but it made her extraordinarily uncomfortable, and she was. Mm -hmm. She was she was expressing how she wished that she she had never done that because she didn't want to expose that part of herself. Sure, which I immediately empathized with. I'm like nobody should be forced to do sure. something like that under any circumstances. Um, however, that you sh we shouldn't be looking down on on uh, actors who choose to do right such a thing. So uh, of course I was reading this on Twitter and whoever was posting a story. Um, this is this is both good and bad, I guess. Jerks that they are, they posted a still of her in the mm. bikini, sure, from the episode, right. And I mean, my, I don't, I don't want to say my take on it, but I, I've seen w way worse situations, yeah. And and I have to say, she, I mean, I thought that she looked great. Yeah, I think that. Um... Going back again, you know, we, we've seen every episode, but it was—it's been a decade since we've seen the whole thing. But now we're we're about, you know, most of the way through season two. Um, I don't think it's exploitative. Um, I, I think she's in a bikini, much less than the men are shirtless, mm -hmm. uh, with with glistening abs and <laughs> yeah. you know, perfect perfect bodies there. So uh, I I didn't think it was exploitative. I mean, the reality of the situation is they're on a desert island with right. very few changes of clothing. <laughs> yeah. So um, you know. You, you kind of shower in the ocean. Um, yeah, Tom Hanks you, you, showed more and yeah, passed away. Exactly. So, so they're they're in kind of a, a rainforesty jungle and mm -hmm. a beach. So I, I probably wouldn't be wearing that much clothing either. So that's it, it's just kind of yeah. Eventually, it's going to go away. No, that, that's very good. Yeah, but you know that's it's not the point. What we think it's the point is what does she absolutely. Think and, and I think you know this is my observation as a viewer. It's not necessarily what the producer said or if network says. Hey, right. how about we show a little skin for the. Uh, for the ratings, yeah, you know, that that that's a different ask of an actor um, that, that we might not perceive the whole story, but um, 
Yeah, it would be a, a tough situation to be in as an actor. Yeah, and well, and I read uh, very very recently about Emily Clark. Amelia Clark uh, said that you know producers and directors were point blank telling her while she was already uh, in 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 a bed nude of hey hey you know let's not disappoint your fans and she's like fuck you yeah this is my body right and I, absolutely I mean I wasn't a fan of that show anyway but. Mm -hmm. they've absolutely got to write like I, I thought there were writers beforehand I thought there was like huge major discussions sure before you put an actor in that situation and if there isn't right. then it should be and and I know that the you know the more advanced you are um, in your career the more say you have I remember thinking I don't know if you're familiar with this movie Carol um, which oh, uh, yeah. I think had Kate Blanchett and uh, Rooney Mara or Kate Mara one of the Mara sisters yeah um, and you know when you looked at the sex scenes in that movie it was clear that Kate Blanchett had a nudity clause and, and Rooney Mara didn't. Uh, yeah. So it was, it was kind of one of those, oh, yeah. I can see who's the established already Oscar winner yeah. that can say, yeah, don't show my nipples, but the new kid, you can show her all you want. That's a very good point. Yeah. Um, Gwyneth Paltrow, her, her career arc is the same. Yeah. Um, well, Rooney Mara was in Dragon, the girl with the dragon tattoo. Mm -hmm. and there, I don't think there was anything she didn't show on that. Right. Um, and I, I, I remember being shocked when I saw that in a theater. I thought that was very uh, brave of her to do it. Right. But that fell very, if you were a fan of those books, it fell very much within the same. It did. And you can the see character. the Swedish versions. Um, Swedish versions the, the are same, bold, bolder same than same that. Same character. With, uh, 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 Numi Rapace. Yeah, yeah. Who's, who's awesome in that, in that role. Um, but Mara, I think, just has a different. Uh, uh, she might have just have a different mindset when it comes to that. She could just be one of those, those people where that doesn't. Uh, it could Bother be, and, and I, I think that uh, sometimes nudity, when it's used for non-sexual situations, can be like really attention-getting and powerful. I mean, you kind of talk about Game of Thrones. I think yeah. the most powerful nude scenes that Amelia Clark did were not the sex scenes. It's the one where she emerges from the fire. Right, right. Um, her clothes would have burned off, but she doesn't have a scratch on her. Yeah. And then again, later in, I think it's the last season... Um, you know, spoiler alert, I think two, three years, spoiler alert, you know, where she burns down kind of all the, uh, oh, yeah, all the, um, the, all the Drogos calls or and Drogos, whatever, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and emerges, you know, nude from the flames. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that, that's a very empowering moment, uh, kind of a badass moment. Uh, but Game of Thrones, being Game of Thrones, it, did also have a lot of gratuitous sexual nudity as well. It makes a lot of sense. Um, the only thing I compare that to, like, a, Denzel Washington did a movie about 20 years ago called Mississippi Masala. Yeah. And he, he got out of bed full frontal. Mm -hmm. And, there, I mean, everybody brought it up. And his, his point was, well, it wouldn't have made any sense, first of all, if I got out and I had underwear on. Because right. the situation was I was just in bed with this woman and, right. and we had sex. So that, that's not consistent with the character. And I think second, his second point was, you know, would you be asking this of a, of a female actor? Right. You know, so it's kind of... We all know that there's biases. Yeah, and of course, I saw the film uh, on VHS. I never noticed it. Like, sure. I, like I'm, I'm sure that it was there, but I couldn't. It didn't stand out. Right. And, and I think, uh, I think nudity is so prevalent in film that a lot of us just tune it out. Right, and definitely, I think male full frontal nudity is is less common. So I think we tend to right. remember that. Um, we all like Ben Affleck and. Gun or Harvey girl. Keitel in the PA. He was oh naked. Oh my God! I yes. think he may have even been like erect in some yeah. scenes. So I mean, it, there was some on the piano. A, a lot of Harvey yeah. Keitel in that movie. Uh, the Bad Lieutenant, which I never saw but heard was oh, was shit. the piano taken to another level in yeah. terms of Harvey Keitel exposure. Yeah. Uh, again, someone who uh, doesn't seem to have a problem with it. Yeah. Uh, you know, 
we'll put in the Seinfeld asterisk. Not that there's anything wrong with Right, that. exactly. Yeah. I don't know how we got on that topic. But That's right. Regardless. So yeah. uh, let's get into Star Wars. Sure. Uh, Rogue One. Um, why is that film, for, for us fans, a victory? You know, I was thinking about that. I was thinking about that when we talked about, you know, uh, discussing Rogue One with, uh, with our next chat. And uh, I, I think everyone's favorite or every adult's favorite Star Wars film is The Empire Strikes Back. And to me, Rogue One is probably the most similar in tone. And I don't think it's just because it has kind of a, a downbeat ending. Um, you know, I think any Star Wars fans probably know going in that for this to work, you know, people don't get out alive. Their mission may be a success, but they don't get out alive. But I think in terms of, you know, there's some humor in there, but it, it's not it's not cheesy humor. It, it, it's not one-liners. It's not puns. It's not a lot of situational humor. Um, I think that the tone is more serious throughout. Um, so I think it's more similar in, in tone to Empire. And maybe that's why it strikes that chord of, hey, you know what? There's some danger here. Um, the, these stakes are very high. These characters, you know, will, will probably die or, or could die. And um, although there's, there's you know, some levity, it's, it's not the forced levity that we've seen in, in some of the other movies. Um, where you know maybe Lucas was making them for a larger audience, including kids. Mm -hmm. So that, that's that's why I think it, it it strikes a chord a little bit more with the true Star Wars fans. I I definitely saw that it was its audience was more narrowed. Yeah. Than say Jedi. Yeah. For sure. Um, it it really had a heightened sense of danger. It did, and it respected the intelligence of the the audience member. I think so. Um, Gareth Edwards, the, the director, uh, he had done uh, like Godzilla before this, uh, the remake with Brian Cranston, mm -hmm. which I, I just so unbelievably enjoyed. Just mm -hmm. really, really, really dug that film. Thought it was great, and so I was excited to see what was going on when they when they announced it, and then I was very disappointed to hear rumors that they had fired him. Mm -hmm. Um, towards the end of production, uh, actually in post-production. And then they, they had released a trailer, and then what you saw in the theater, uh, a lot of what you saw in the trailer... That, it wasn't in there, yeah. That ...had people swinging their fists. It's not in the film. Yeah. And uh, I don't think that anyone's going to be asking for an Edwards cut. Right. Like we've got this great demand right now for the Snyder cut. Of which, Justice League or, or any of those, right. yeah. Which uh, that that just sound that whole story of Justice League just sounds like that's yeah. crazy, right? That's like solo crazy, right? Which, which we'll get into later. But Tony Gilroy, uh, the director of uh, uh, Michael Clayton mm -hmm. and famous script doctor, has written a few things. Uh, he he took one pass through it, knew exactly what to do, sold Kathleen Kennedy on it, said I can pick up the pieces and I can move on. And I think he did a phenomenal job. Yeah. And he only shot, I think it's like 25 minutes of screen time. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he picked it up effectively right when they get to the island. Okay. And then he reshot everything after that. Uh, first of all, it's like seamless. Right. You can't tell there's two different Not at all. Directors. Not at all. So Gilroy did a very good job of uh, looking at what uh, Edwards had done. Mm -hmm. And then uh, 
absolutely copying that style. Right. And and that's been, you know, I've read people about, uh, people have written papers on like Toby Hooper and how he just revered Spielberg and just looked at every Spielberg movie. And that's why uh, a lot of Hooper's later films look so much like Spielberg. Sure, right. Right, uh, including Poltergeist. Of course, that's a you, separate argument. You almost couldn't tell, you know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. A lot of people claim that, and I believe it, Spielberg actually shot Poltergeist and Hooper produced it. If nothing else, I, I get the sense that he was a strong mentor presence. and Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's obvious they shot in the same neighborhood, too. So I think... Yeah, they admitted that. that. They there's admitted that subtle... That. Yeah. Um, hey, here's E.T. Um, yeah. There's another story on the other street from E.T., yeah. Right. Um, going on simultaneously. Yeah. Um, the the casting diversity. When I remember opening up... I don't remember if it was Premier Magazine or Entertainment Weekly or whatever it was, but yeah. they, had, they had the cast of there. And but what did you think about the, the diversity of the cast? I think it was good, and I think it was... It's weird because, you know, I'm a big believer in diversity in film, and, and I'm the first to admit that there hasn't really been true representation in um, film in general, much less sci-fi or the Star Wars universe. And yet, I think there was something subtle about Rogue One that felt forced in The Force Awakens, um, you know, where it kind of felt like, okay, let's let's check boxes here and make sure we have an African-American, a Latino, an Asian. You know, it, 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 it seemed like it was market-tested before it was cast. Whereas Rogue One, I didn't necessarily uh, feel that way. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, it almost felt a little bit more organic with uh, kind of the way this, this Motley crew kind of came together. So, I don't know, maybe it was just a matter of perception to where it didn't seem so forced yeah. uh, in the, the diversity casting. Yeah, um, no, I, I would agree with that. Um, I, I think that everybody in The Force Awakens is talented. Mm-hmm. As I do throughout the sure. whole trilogy. Yeah, I um, wouldn't. I wouldn't recast anyone necessarily. Not necessarily, especially not John Boyega. Right, he just seems like I, I do remember the Force Awakens thinking that uh, Oscar Isaac just didn't didn't really fit for me. Right, but I could see how he could stand out. Sure, you know he's kind of like the Han in that. Right, right. Um, he's he's the rebel rebel. So if the, if they want to go with that archetype that that seems fine rogue one um it didn't it didn't really even occur to me uh until i read an article about it about a month before it came out about oh well this is a a diverse cast you know i'm going to go back to an interview that jj abrams did they asked him like why is it that all of your tv series have strong female roles Mm -hmm. and he just he's like well i just feel like the world has changed and and we have to move on and I don't, I don't really think of I'm writing a, a, a story for a strong female role. I feel like I just have to write a good story. Right. And if a female fits the role, then let's go with that. Unless, it, unless there's something in it that innately it has to be a guy. Right. Because of X situation. Well, why can't we have um, some sort of equality about that? I think there's a lot to say about that. I think there's only one miscast role in Rogue One. Mm-hmm. And every time I watch it, it it really makes me take a second guess, and that's uh, Riz Ahmed. Yeah, who plays the Imperial pilot. Sure. And immediately when he first came onto the screen, I was just thinking, this dude does not look. If you look at any Imperial pilot mm-hmm. in any Star Wars film before this, right? Clean shaven. Crew cut. I mean, it looked like John Boyega, right? In 
Force Awakens, and Ahmed had a beard basically, like yeah. not not even a full beard, like he hadn't shaven in a couple of weeks type of beard, right? And uh, rather long, unkempt hair, right? And obviously there was a meeting to determine everyone's look and everyone's style and and why. And I just don't understand why they made that choice for someone who was supposed to be an Imperial pilot. Correct. That didn't make sense to me. So as the the film went went on, that kept pulling me out of the story every time that he appeared. Right. Because I kept losing. So what is he doing again? Oh, he's the Imperial pilot who's decided to fight the Empire. Right. And I had to keep reminding me, myself of that because he didn't look like he was supposed to look right exactly and we understand that you know imperial pilots are largely helmeted so we don't get to see them but i mean i think sure. if you look at the expanded universe you see the clone wars you see very much like what you're saying you see a very kind of militaristic um standard that a lot of the pilots are, are held to which mm. would make sense if they're troopers if they're part of an infantry um to where you're supposed to be clean shaven you're supposed to be crew cutted um the empire is is nothing if not uniform and mm -hmm. uh what they ask of you know their participants um so yeah, it did seem a little little odd, right? And so perhaps, perhaps he's not so much miscast as the costume design wasn't accurate for for his role. Sure, that that could be it. But I I didn't. That led me to question like, well, maybe he shouldn't be in that role. Maybe they should have cast him. But maybe just a good shave and a haircut would have done it. You know, it's it's the least memorable role of the movie. So I I really didn't think about his character that much period hmm. well um, i don't think that about yeah. anybody else in the cast right because they're rebels right you know uh well if felicity jones showed up with a beard i'd be kind yeah that'd be a little weird right for sure so let, let's talk about her yeah uh, her versus boyega her versus poe or her versus well, they let her keep uh, her British accent, unlike Boyega, <laughs> uh, which is kind of cool. Uh, no, I think Felicity Jones has one of those faces that, you know, even though we've seen her in things, like we almost forget about um, about her. I mean, she was, by the time she did Rogue One, she'd already had an Oscar nomination for yeah. the Theory of Everything. Um, and yet, you know, she still looked like a fresh face. Mm -hmm. um, so so I, I thought that was, that was kind of appealing. Like, hey, I haven't seen this you know actress before or I, I have but I, but i've forgotten about that and to me anytime i can be in that situation um you know it, it always it kind of adds a little bit of mystery not just to the character but the character's journey you know it's, it's like i kind of know that uh you know if i see tom cruise he's going to survive to the end of the movie right if i see tom hanks he's probably not going to die at the end of the movie you know so seeing a, a, a new performer you know my like, gosh you know what i i don't know what's going to happen to them because they're you know a brand new performer um no, so i think it was point. kind of a kind of appealing please excuse me as i'm i'm pulling up my IMDb. yeah uh because i, I want to look at the cast i think that's a valid point and i think that might have been done intentionally she was born in 83 just think about that yeah so and the poster for rogue one um I mean, I went apeshit over over the poster, right? Which you can find on IMDb. Like, right. I, that just called back to everything I ever wanted in 1980. Indeed, indeed, right. and I think you know that kind of carried over to the trailer. Like, you know, I think we're so used to seeing these uh, these armored walkers, um, you know, just in in the snow or in the forest. So, kind of seeing them on the beach, 
uh, was was really cool. Like, oh wow, they've got those there too. You know, I guess I just I think of these as only like Hoth things. Um, you know, even though they had the Scout Walkers, I guess on, on Endor or the, the Endor Moon, but um, you know, see them on the beach. It's like, oh well, I guess they have these everywhere. So that was really cool to kind of bring those back since those hadn't really been brought back in any any Star Wars movie. Um, I know we got a kick of it at the time because my uh, my little brother who works for uh, the Four Seasons uh, hotel chain. Uh, he was in the Maldives uh, where they shot. Oh, nice. One. It was a different island. But, you know, he would try to explain to us, like, okay, what what does the Maldives look like? It's just this island paradise out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And then they, they shot um, the end of Rogue One there in the Maldives. So he's able to say, yeah, that's that's what it looks like. The the scene, the opening scene where you see the AT-ATs come up the horizon onto the beach mm-hmm. was... It was the same feeling I had when I was five or six, and I saw right. saw them on Hoth. Yeah, I had this. I went through the same emotional experience. Right. That that really keyed everything in. Um, there was a moment in the trailer, unfortunately, that Edwards had shot that was cut, and it was Jen dressed as a, as an Imperial pilot, and she was in a tunnel, and the tunnel lights up. Yeah. And you will still see gifs. Oh yeah, all over Twitter of that shot. That shot is not in the movie, right? And I wish if there were one shot from the trailer that should have made the movie, that should have been it. Absolutely, you know, absolutely. That really had a, a halo effect around her as a sort of symbolic saint, right? Of the if anyone's going to save us in this situation, it's going to be her. Yeah, and I harken back to that great art direction of, yeah. of the original Star Wars. You know, just. You know what masterfully designed ships these were, mm-hmm. um, not just were functional but and dangerous, but had these gr- this great look too, and and I think because this did connect and lead right up to what's so familiar uh, with us in in the Star Wars universe and A New Hope, um, I, I think it it, it it was really special. I, I there was some some fan servicing, you know, no question, well, of course, um, yeah. but it, it it wasn't indulgent. I, I think it, it it fit right in uh, seamlessly. So, so I really appreciated that, and I mean, I, I did appreciate the Easter eggs and the servicing a little bit too. But it oh, didn't yeah. seem gratuitous. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I don't think that it did, uh, and it made sense mm-hmm. um, versus some of the things in the prequels, which didn't align with things that you held sacred for right fifteen twenty years. Uh, the the cast, as far as uh, I mean, Alan Tudyk is K two S O right. You know, we're, we're so used to um, having these attachments with droids, mm-hmm. and BB-8 is cute, but that's about all he is. Yeah, and that cone dog from from, uh, from the, the Rise yeah. of Skywalker. Yeah, you know he's cute, but that's about all he is. And we mentioned before about how he just sort of lost the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern wandering through the plot type of situation. Right. K2SO is not is is not a member of that type of strophing greek strophing that we have got going on right right but uh, he he's actually a part of the cast and i thought it was brilliant how he uh, how they utilized him oh absolutely reprogrammed uh, droid yeah who was 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 fully aware of the danger of every situation they were in absolutely you know? yeah it was very much a functional member of, of the team and you know had some great lines and had some great humor but again didn't seem like it was pandering right uh, like some of the other Versus Solo. Right. Where it right. just seemed like uh, the droid and that actress who played the droid who was 
um, in Phoebe love Waller, with Waller, right? I think was yeah. did it. Yeah. I think she did it. I think she did a good job. It, it wasn't it wasn't her acting style. It was the no, direction the, the chosen droid for her. Made some curious choices. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, you can look at it that way. Right. Um, the weakest link is it's the most. It, it's really really famous. It's, we mentioned it before how it was just such a joke about the first movie, the small thermal exhaust port. Yes. And that is the plot of the first film. Absolutely. So it redeems something that most Star Wars fans have been just at best willing to overlook at worst, you know, really bothered by that, that, um, you know, one small weakness um, could could undo something of that size and that you, you would know that. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, now that we see with Rogue One, Hey, it's, it's, it's an, you know, an example of of, uh, sabotage. I think by somebody who had to, you know, give years of his life working on a project that he did not believe in and, and had to be subtle about how he planned to take it down. Right. Well, and, and that actor um, who plays uh, Urso's, Jen Urso's father. Right, Mads, uh, Mads Mikkelsen. Mikkelsen. Yeah. Yeah. I, we're so used to seeing him as a villain. Right. So seeing him as this protective father, that was great. The entire opening. Yeah. Of Karenic, director Karenic landing down and trying to rope them in. When Karenic shows up, and it's, uh, man, I can't remember that actor's name, but, he, but he, he's been in tons since then. Yeah, we just saw him on The Outsider, too. Yeah. I should know his name. Ben Mendelsohn. Okay. Yeah. He was in Ready Player One. Yeah, right. Yeah, and, and I just immediately, particularly because of the outfit, mm-hmm. he looked like he walked off the Death Star in 1977. Exactly. You know, it was for 1974, I should say. Right, right. It, it just immediately, in the shuttle, the old shuttle from Jedi, it just yeah. harkened back. So you immediately saw symbols that you you placed you into a specific time period. Yeah. And and uh, to a lot of us who had been waiting so long to see that, I think it, it just gave us this shot of adrenaline. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I got to ask, I'm sorry to be jumping all the way around yeah. here, but I got to ask about Forrest Whitaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love Forrest Whitaker. Um, I'll watch him in anything. Um, we, we just saw him in Panic Room a few nights ago. Right. And, um, you know, he's in The Crying Game. And, yeah. And he, I think he won an Oscar for uh, The Last, Last King Man's, of Scotland. Yeah, Last King of Scotland, which was phenomenal. Great love, performance. Love yeah. that film. Great performance. Uh, hard working actor. Right. Know? In, in an industry that you have to think, geez, you know, black, a little bit of a lazy eye, overweight. Right. Oh, what, what is he doing in this industry? And it's right. because he's so goddamn talented. Right, right. And uh, that's why guys like us were like, oh, Forrest Whitaker's in that? Sold. Right, right. Maybe it was the costume, but did he fit into Rogue One? It was a little ridiculous to be. Um, and, and if nothing else... Maybe we, we kind of join this story at the end of Saw Gerrera's story uh, when I, I kind of wanted a little bit more. I, I kind of felt like for him to be this major catalyst in the rebellion, you know, I kind of wanted a little bit more backstory from him um, before, you know, we, we took this whole journey kind of based on, on his involvement and his help. Um, and I didn't know, I actually didn't know until last year, I, I had to watch The Clone Wars. Uh, and the character Saw Gerrera appears in the Clone Wars as one of those, um, I can't remember if he was a Jedi that just, you know, kind of just didn't like following rules. Or, or he was a figure in the Rebellion, but he was only in like one or two episodes 
he was a kind of minor character. And I don't know which came first, if it was them laying the groundwork for Rogue One or uh, Rogue One just kind of picked up on a forgotten rebel character that was mentioned so that there'd be some familiarity. Um, I mean, it's kind of hard to screw up a rebellion, so, you know, or to have different approaches to the rebellion. So, I mean, I don't know if he was more like the, the hardcore terrorist uh, branch of the rebellion, um, but it did leave me wanting a little bit more explanation mm-hmm. um, as, as to... There's He's several involved. things you can you can pick out of that. Like you know, I I read something online where he's the Yondu of Rogue One. I don't particularly agree with that. Yeah, no, I think he's he's a little bit more dangerous in there. Maybe for some reason why Mon Mothma you know wouldn't want to work with him. Right. Um. But but obviously Jyn Erso has that that kind of father figure connection with him, uh, to where he's important from that standpoint. Yeah, he is an extremist. Yeah. But this is an alliance. Right. So. I get that. Um, I'm, I'm hesitant to use the word terrorist because you know, if you're fighting the empire, right? You know, and and that's your goal. Like what? Um, I don't remember. I don't remember what film it is. You know, I can't believe I don't remember what film it is. So someone say, "Well, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom." For, it's a it's a James Bond film. It's the right. world is not enough. Okay, 1999, Pierce Brosnan. And they talk about Robert Carlyle's character. Well, sure. You know, he's a terrorist. And the objection is, well, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom Everyone's fighter. the hero of their own story, well, right. This person, yeah. here's here's the thing. Like, this person is not interested in anyone's, anyone's freedom except right. his own. Right. And I, I think that doesn't apply to, to Ben Gazzara. Not Ben Gazzara. Saul Guerrero. Saul Guerrero. Yeah. Ben Gazzara is an actor. Right. St. Jack, 1979. But Ben Gazzara could be a Star Wars name. He could. Yeah. He could be, totally. Yeah. yeah. He's probably a pod racer. Yeah, right. <laughs> Uh, so Saul Guerrero, uh, uh, he hates the Empire so much. I didn't. I didn't. They they make it up to be that he is this ruthless character, and right. he'll cut you loose if it's if it's uh, uh, his survival and and not right. But his goal seems to be the same. It is. I think maybe they're they're just you know where they're mincing words is maybe the casualties of war. If okay, hey, we're going to do something, and if some civilians die. I mean, I kind right. of got that impression. Then, right. Then so so be it. Oh my God! I mean, I mean, well, that's a valid point. But I mean, how many hundreds of thousands of people did we kill in Japan? Right. Between 1943 and 1945. Right. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of right. civilians had nothing to do with the war effort. Right. Uh, and I'm not making excuses for it, but that's what happens in war. It is. It is. In, in it any is. war you get into. And yet, you know, you watch, you know, the old films, you kind of watch uh, Leia Organa, you watch Mon Mothma, you kind of watch the, their decision-making process, and, and that seems to be a factor uh, in, in all of their decisions, even if it means patience. Mm-hmm. Whereas Saul Carrera, at least I kind of got the impression that he's, he probably was one more for urgency and expedient action, um, because that's what it took to take down an empire. Well, it looked like he'd been... In that business, a long it did. time. It did, right? You know, uh, Yasser Arafat was—I don't remember how old he was—he was late sixties when he died. Right. Been fighting Israel his entire life. Right. Exactly. So to him, yeah, maybe it was urgent. Right. Maybe yeah. so. Maybe it was urgent. And and I do feel—I mean, you know—say what you want, people. Go ahead and write your nasty emails. I do feel that Yasser Arafat's objective was uh, to free his people. He felt sure. that was and whatever we think of that motive. I think that he felt that that was true. Right. So that, that's a good, good part. So, uh, so Whitaker, uh, 
So we think that Whitaker, uh, do you think he could have been replaced by a better actor? Or do you think it was just the get-up? Yeah, you know, I think it was probably more the get-up than the actor. Because um, I enjoyed the voice. Yeah, I enjoyed the voice too. But but I think it was kind of the, the, the get-up without the explanation or something like that. But, you know, maybe you, know, you picked up on it, kind of like the Yasser Arafat comparison, is, is here somebody may have... May have been sixty, but was probably you know in the body of a hundred year old right. um, because of the toll the fight took on him. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and so I think I got that to some point. And you know I think without Galen Erso's message, um, you know he probably wouldn't have even been brought into this story. Mm-hmm. Um, he probably just would have continued and then you know been none the wiser when his plan is blown up by the Empire. Yeah. And now there's a lot of now I, I believe that he's he's gone two thirds of the way through the movie if I remember correctly. That's right. So, he's, so it's it's not something that uh, reshoots or anything could have uh, could have fixed. Uh, not not like the opportunities they had in Solo, for example, which right. we get to. But I think uh, I think that's that's it. Uh, I just wanted to wind up by by saying I think that Tony Gilroy did. I I, I shudder to think. You have to think of it in terms of this because I, I sometimes you hear about these these screenings in Hollywood, yeah, uh, and sometimes they go right and sometimes they go wrong, and then sometimes um, what you hear is not what happened. Like for instance, uh, A Touch of Evil in 1959, mm-hmm. Orson Welles uh, came back to Hollywood, made one film for uh, uh, Universal. Uh, you know, Universal was basically a, a B movie monster studio for a very long time. Dracula, Frankenstein, Wolfman, all that. Abbott Costello meets the Wolfman. And so he, he shot a film noir in Venice, California, uh, practically within a month. Charlton Heston plays this Mexican lawyer on the border. Right. Uh, they they screen it, and the Hollywood executives look at it, and they said, oh, my God, what are we going to do? This is so horrible. And then proceed to basically edit down and pan the movie release it to a restricted audience and the only one who who sees it in full is a european audience it's like it's it's fine if europeans see it right but we we don't want americans to know how bad this this movie is wells didn't have final cut uh 30 years later 50 50 years later uh walter murch the famous hollywood editor who edited apocalypse now has a couple of oscars they gave it to him he re-edited it using wells's 50 page Memorandum of what is wrong with this movie. Right. Uh, it's supervised. Uh, they, they put it together. They issue it on DVD. They reissue it in the theaters. Um, the American Film Institute chooses Touch of Evil to be the best film of 1999. Right. And so, w- what is it that they saw that was so horrible in the film? I, I don't know. So, part, part there's a part of me that's very reserved about what did the studio see when they saw Rogue One in the first cut? What was it that they saw that they didn't like, which which made Kathleen Kennedy and the rest of Disney go, oh my God, we have a problem. What, I mean, what do you think that it was? Yeah, well, I mean, kind of, we're nitpicking Saw Gerrera and, and stuff like that, but I mean, really half the movie is set up and half the movie is the mission. Um, and, you know, if, if I hadn't followed the, the, the studio and the kind of the... the um, musical chairs of the directors uh, as closely as you had. But, you know, if Tony Gilroy's, you know, contribution was um, the second half of the film, I mean, that, that's the most important part of the film. That's, that's kind of the mission. So so I don't know. I don't know if uh, the original director just really kind of botched the uh, the actual mission 
Um, but to me, it seems like everything else leading up to that was set up. And I think we're willing to go along with it. There's nothing necessarily wrong with it. But it's not everyone's favorite part of the film. Um, it, it's not what we're going to judge Rogue One by, you know, at least in my opinion. It, it, it's going to be the actual mission. It, it's almost like a heist movie. Right. You know, kind of at the end, but with, with much bigger stakes than just going to jail. Right. Well, I can't wait to get into that with you. And so here, let me get a beer. All right. No embarrassing beer. <laughs> okay. So, um, I, I understand. I don't understand everything that they saw. Uh, everyone pretty much associated with the project is contractually obligated not to talk about it. Right. Um, Gareth Edwards has not said anything. Tony Gilroy has done one podcast in which he... I don't, I don't say that he avoided anything, but he was very frank about stuff that we we kind of would already assume happened. Mm -hmm. uh, he said that when he came on to set, everyone was 100% supportive. And they, they said, whatever you want to do, we're on board. He had to fire some minor department heads, and he had to change some studio decisions. Right. But pretty much that was it. The entire introduction of Darth Vader was his idea. Okay. And the addition of the chase at the end, which, considering how we all knew it was going to wind up, I could not believe how tense and on my seat I was. Right. Hoping, like, oh shit, is Leia going to get away? Of course she's going right, to get away. Exactly. Well, I guess you could say she's caught in in the next right, the exactly. beginning of the next film, but I wasn't so sure, man. Vader was on her like a like a wolfhound. Exactly. And I think it was one of those things if you see it back, you've got to suspend disbelief a little bit because I think you you see Vader and it is some of the most badass, ruthless Vader carnage that you'll ever see on film. Mm -hmm. And then he'll turn around um I guess like literally a week later and have that weak-ass 1977 lightsaber duel, old man lightsaber <laughs> well, duel right. with Obi-Wan Kenobi. So so I guess his lightsaber skills regress quite a bit in a week. But I didn't care. Yeah. Uh, because there was such that adrenaline rush from just seeing him come out of the dark mm -hmm. and throw people up on the ceiling. It, 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 it was tremendous. And especially since, you know, he's probably the one bad guy that we'll just out-and-out out root for in the Star Wars saga. Yeah. Um whether because he redeems himself at the end or because, you know, there's nothing like full-out Vader. Uh, I think he's everyone's favorite villain of all time. So um, so I absolutely loved that addition at the end. Yeah. Uh, it, the film didn't need it, but since it had it, man, that was a thrilling way to, to get up from your seat. It, it just made everything sweeter. It and did. How the rebels just scattered. Just yeah. like, oh, a, yeah. Like an oncoming wave just wiped them all out and, Particularly, I just remember that one guy at the door, like, let me out, let me out. Yeah. And there's just knowing like, that there was no hope. And just the fear of being in that room locked with, locked in with someone like that. Right, it's absolutely. excruciating fear. And I, I thought that Gilroy did a fantastic job of absolutely. conveying that to the audience. Absolutely. Now, uh, Billy Lord was a stand-in for her mother in, okay. in this film. Right. Uh, I know that she was in the... In the last two, yeah, um, I want to say she was in Rogue One, but I, I can't. I can't say that. 
for, for sure. And then they, they basically uh, mapped over her face with a younger version of Carrie Fisher. They had a mold of Carrie Fisher's face, which they used for, uh, I want to say, Jedi. Mm -hmm. When they made uh, models for the, the forest run. I don't know where the hell those were for right. 40 years and who remembered that they were there. Right. There's a great show on Disney Plus called Props. And it's these guys that go into the Disney vault. And nice. They, and they find old Disney props. My, my wife raves about the Mary Poppins uh, episode. My favorite one is Tron. Okay. If you if you want to go back some memory lane, you right. can see the one on Tron. Anyway, nice. um, so they used that mold, um, scanned it, and Carrie Fisher was still alive at the time. Right. So she, I believe they used her voice. And I, I thought it, I mean, the first time I saw it, I, <clears throat> I, I, I couldn't believe it wasn't her. Yeah. Like it was, there, there were, there were a lot of people that complain about CGI in films. Um, I know that I just saw a documentary on HBO Max mm -hmm. called Spielberg, mm -hmm. and it went over his the arc of his career so far, and they interviewed four or five people, Kathleen Kennedy, uh, Frank Marshall, uh, Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, and Dennis Murin. Mm -hmm. Dennis Murin was big guy at ILM for most of his career. ILM had been working on on CGI for ten years, mm -hmm. and they, I mean, Steven Spielberg needed needed a walking dinosaur, needed one, and went to Kathleen Kennedy and said, "I need one, and if I can't have one, we ain't making this." Right. So she went to animatronics, and they basically said, "It'll do anything but run. Can't cannot run." Spielberg said, "Not good enough." This is Steven fucking Spielberg. Right, Kathleen right. Kennedy was not going to say no. Right. So she went to ILM, they all got in the room, and all five of them said the same thing. When they first saw that dinosaur uh, leap across the screen for the first time, all of them said, oh my god. Now, I, I am not actually a Jurassic Park fan. Right. I think in the Spielberg pantheon, it's probably in the bottom quartile. It's mm -hmm. not a bad movie, it's just that it doesn't interest me as a story. It was fun in 93. <laughs> uh, yeah, every, yeah, everyone thought so. Like, you know, I didn't mind going to see it. It's uh, I will see any movie, even bad sure. ones. I sure. saw fucking Showgirls six times in the theater because <laughs> I that's how much I love train wrecks. Right, right. But you cannot deny the power of that moment. And absolutely, one of the guys said, he said, "quote I'm not exaggerating when I say it is the equivalent of sound." Right of what theater of what movies were in 1929, and what they were in 1930. Sure, he said it was it was just as profound. And uh, when Tron Legacy came out, and everyone complained about Jeff Bridges' uh, face on Clue, mm -hmm. and how it just looked fake. Man, I think that particular film is kind of a matter of opinion. Like right. I, I thought it looked pretty good. I did too. And, I mean, he was supposed to look like a program. Right. It was stylized yeah. enough. I yeah, think. like yeah. a video game. Yeah. You know, and maybe it was a problem because all the other programs were actors and they didn't look the same way. Right. What if you did them all that way? Like, can you imagine how much that would cost? You know, I get it. But there, bad CGI exists. I mean, fucking cats. Right. Last year proves how bad it could be. Right. So 
when I say I sat in a seat and I saw the girl I fell in love with, right, again, that that elicited a moment out of my heart. Sure, that was really amazing. Yeah, and I can't believe they recreated it. I was absolutely floored. It it really was pretty special, and and I thought. Um... Yeah, the Tarkin, it, it probably looked a little bit better than the Tarkin, which, you know, I think it probably helps that the actress was still alive, uh, that she had a daughter that looks an awful lot like her. Um, I don't know who they used to have, you know, Tarkin's stand in because, um, you know, Peter Cushing's been, been dead for what, 30 years now or something yeah. like that. Um, but I, I thought it was just as thrilling to see Tarkin again. Because uh, Tarkin is someone I maybe didn't pay a whole lot of attention to as a kid, but as I start rewatching and rewatching, I think Peter Cushing in A New Hope is gives the single greatest acting performance of the entire Star Wars saga. I wow. think he, he's exactly what I want an empirical villain to be. He's smart. He's calculating. He's thinking three steps ahead. Yeah. He's, he's still confident, and arrogant, and and so I like that part. And. Um, I know the uh, the novelization of, of Rogue One really played up just the tension between Krennic and Tarkin. Oh. Um, that, that, you know, Krennic has done all of this to design the Death Star, and then Tarkin just says, I'll take it from here. Right. And and get all the credit with the Emperor. Um, and, and, and that real tension. And that's what drives Krennic to just, you know, lose it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I thought that was just a fascinating dynamic among very powerful people in the um, you know the empire, and to me it felt a lot more authentic than you know Kylo Ren and you know what Bill right. Weasley. I, I, I don't even remember yeah. his name well, <laughs> in, in the Star Wars saga. You know, I wrote about that in my review yeah. of the Last Jedi about how I just felt like the the original trilogy just had these. Uh, you know, it was a generation generational conflict, and you have right. these old guys, Captain Nita and Admiral Viet, and they they were just these old, decrepit, corrupt establishment, and it was kind of like the Graduate. You know, the young people were coming in and right. trying to take over type of situation, and and I just I, I was thinking like really like people are fucking following Bill Weasley like that. Yeah, Hux didn't seem like he earned, and and I remember in in that that Star Wars saga again from kind of more from the novelizations that. Um, you know, his father was like a general as mm-hmm. well. Um, I think he ended up being murdered by Captain Phasma or something like that. Okay. Um, with, you know, I think his, with Hux's approval or suggestion maybe even, that he kind of took over for his father by overthrowing him. Um, but but that never really, fed, that, that rank in, in the military hierarchy of the First Order never felt earned to me. Um, yeah. Whereas but, in uh, Rogue One, you go back to the, the same strata that you're used to. Yeah. Now, uh, down to uh, to Governor Tarkin again, mm-hmm. and, and Peter Cushing, his lines in the first film, and his timing and his pacing. Like I know that there's a director there. Yeah. She can. I think that there's something something to it. I mean, he, he and Alec Guinness are the veterans. Right. In this, and I don't believe they ever meet. But but that line where he turns around to the princess and says, you know, in a way, you will have the choice to choose who suffers first, or something to that effect. It's the way that he delivers the lines. Yeah, uh, you know when he says another target, the military target, then name the system. Like it, there's a logical flow to, to the way that he's conveying his ideas. Right, right. And uh, it, it's something that you have to you have to put into context of of particularly that film of 
these are what they're up against. Mm-hmm. These are what the, what the rebels are fighting. Right. Guys like Tarkin. These are very capable, very yeah. intelligent, very seasoned military right. leaders. Right. Um, that are used to bringing out the big guns, too. Yes. And so, yeah, I think it does create a little bit more urgency for the rebellion as a whole. It's it's like, yeah, hey, we're not just getting a bunch of Ewoks to take down some <laughs> scout troopers here. It's like, this is what we're up against, this huge military-industrial complex. Yeah, so, uh, now, I remember fucking Fred Astaire dancing with a vacuum cleaner. Right. 30-second commercial. Yeah. Uh, I'm not cool with that. Um, right. Peter Cushing's estate, uh, which included his children, decided sure. they wanted to do this. Um, they sold it. Um, Lucasfilm sold it. And it was done tastefully. I think that yeah. it was. I think and was. I think that's something to where, yeah, I, I don't want to suddenly see a new James Dean movie. Um, no. But I think if we're resurrecting a character um, you know, within a franchise... Um, I, I'm okay with that if the uh, the actor's estate is, um, because I certainly think that that's one of the things that CGI can do well um, is is kind of de-age people. You know, Samuel L. Jackson can't go back to being twenty, but you know, you look at something like Captain Marvel. I thought, hey, it's Samuel L. Jackson at twenty. I didn't notice. You know, I didn't notice that at, at all. Well, he looks so good anyway. Right, but, right, yeah. exactly. But um, I think Gemini Man, Will Smith, did look. They didn't have the budget that Captain Marvel did, but young Will Smith looked like young Will Smith. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that's that's a, a really encouraging use of CGI. So to resurrect somebody who's who's dead, um, but you have enough film of the character, uh, and you're resurrecting that character, I'm okay with that. Um, and certainly more willing to do that in the Star Wars canon just because there's still so much more you can tell mm-hmm. about that time frame. Um, so that that's I, I, I was I, I was thrilled to have have Tarkin resurrected uh, just as much as Leia. Other other than his his neck, which in a couple of shots looked kind of video gameish. Right. Uh, I thought it looked I thought it was passed over very well. Yeah, I thought so too. Uh, my my only reservation would be, and of course, we, there's nothing in terms of Cushing, but you know, in the future, actors are going to have to decide this. They're going to have to say, okay, uh, my image dies with me right and no one's allowed to use it they're gonna have to specifically say that or they're gonna have to have a law right or it depends on how hard up their nieces and nephews are for money um you know (laughs) 20 years after they're dead so let me let me float a fan theory by you Mm -hmm. that um came out of rogue one and discussions with one of my cousins who's, who's roughly our age um but had a revelation after seeing rogue one and it had specifically to do with the character of chirrut imwe that that kind of blind monk Mm-hmm. Um, you know, who would say, you know, I'm one with the force and the force is with me or something like that. I'm paraphrasing. Um, but he specifically says this through a, a scene on Scarif where all the, the, all the Imperial troopers are shooting at him while he's, I think, going to, um, to, to do something and they, they miss him. And so my cousin's takeaway from that is it's the will of the force that he should succeed. The force is directing all of those shots to go astray. And he saw a parallel in that to just how god-awful a shot all the stormtroopers seem to be when they're trying to hit Luke, Leia, and Han in the saga. The Force is... So that the Force is is kind of willing 
a poor marksmanship because what they want to see is this return to balance. They, they want to see the rebels succeed in, in overthrowing the Empire. And because of that, that's why people can't, stormtroopers can't hit anything. So, so what do you think about that? That's kind of an extreme theory. Um, is it luck? Right. Is it the will of the Force? I love it. <laughs> I love that argument. Yeah. That's, I hope this is the only podcast that the argument is on. <laughs> that is an amazing argument. Right. I've never heard I'll, that I'll credit Derek Wilson. Yeah, so that my is cousin. Yeah. highly original. Yeah. I love every second of it. I'm going to forward that every time I watch Star Wars now. I'm going to, I'm going to put the characters in that situation and see if it's true. Yeah. That's, well, particularly like, uh, Vader cuts down Obi Wan, mm-hmm. and Luke is running to the ship. Yeah, running to the Falcon, and there's lasers flying all over the place. No, that's that's something to think about. Right sure, there. that's sure. pretty cool. Because I mean, you look at the way they gun down, you know, um, you know, Galen Erso's wife at the mm-hmm. beginning. Um, Brutal. Know, they, they can they can hit a target, mm-hmm. right? They obviously can kill, you know, Baru and and, and Owen. Uh, in a new hope, they can kill the Chawas and, and everything like that. Mm. They can hit their mark when they're not aiming at these people, or when they're not using lethal weapons. Like they can stun Leia. Oh yeah, they can. They can stun Leia. That's a right. hard shot to hit, right? And but, it doesn't uh, really work on droids, right? C three PO got got famously blasted to bits. Sure. Okay, Solo. Yes. This this movie. Made over a hundred million dollars. Yeah. Uh, in the theaters, mm-hmm. and I understand that it's 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 close to the billion dollar mark now. It hasn't lost money. It's made a lot of money. Sure. So my first question is: is is Solo a failure at all, or is this just dogged by bad press? I think it's dogged by bad press. I, I think it had a, probably a, a higher profile change of directors than Rogue One did, where it's a little bit more subtle. I think maybe. Uh, Lucasfilm was more excited about working with those uh, two guys from the Lego movie um, and, and giving them the keys to the kingdom. And so, uh, uh, and maybe Ron Howard is a more high profile replacement, so to speak, than Tony Gilroy. So, so I, I wonder what they had been doing, especially since, you know, their background had been in, in kind of this high concept comedy. Um, were they making a joke out of Solo? You know, was it tongue in cheek? Um, you know, why were they replaced? And I have a feeling that like Rogue One, we may never know. Um, so I wonder if it's, it's some bad press that, that kind of gives it a bad rap. Um, I, I think it's a fun movie. Um, you know, I, I don't hold it to the, the level of Rogue One, which I thought was a, was a masterful movie um, telling a very specific story in the Star Wars canon. I thought Solo was just fun. It was kind of pure trashy fun. And and I was willing to to overlook a lot of stuff just because I I enjoyed you know the two hours I spent watching it, which I, I can't say about necessarily Attack of the Clones or Phantom Menace, uh, at least not on the rewatch. Yeah, that's that's a fair point. Um, I understand that uh, the tone and the tongue in cheek, uh, particularly of Han, and the entire comedy aspect mm-hmm. of the film was completely not what Lucasfilm wanted. Right. Uh, and not what Disney was expecting. Sure. And I, I understand that the rough cut of the film uh, sent them into a crisis meeting. 
and they had to make a snap decision because they had a release date, which later was pushed. Right. Which, I mean, as painful as it sounds, they probably should not have pushed it. Right. Because that's that's the first indication of trouble. Right. Um, but they had to do what they had to do. And I also understand that Kathleen Kennedy was not going to pull the trigger unless she had a replacement before. Right. And luckily, she and Ron Howard known each other for right 40 years. And he agreed to do it before before they, the others were even fired. Now, sidebar here. Has anybody replaced directors more often than you know, Kathleen Kennedy? Oh, uh, replaced direct. So, she re- so, I mean, if she so did she this mid-picture mid Rogue One, mid-picture no, Solo. No, uh, well, mid-picture Rogue One, not mid-picture Solo. So, okay. this, so Woody Harrelson went on to a podcast. Uh, I think it was Christopher Tapley. And uh, that was the first question. Like, they couldn't ignore it. Like, it, yeah, this right. is one of those situations where there was no point in getting anybody to sign an NDA. Right. It was, it was already so much news. And and Woody Harrelson said that uh, he was talking about it with uh, I think Matthew McConaughey mm-hmm. and their friends, and uh, to no one's shock or surprise, and and they were both TV days, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right, and they were both saying how like it was the only time they're both actors in their late forties, early fifties, right? It was the only time it had ever happened uh, to Woody Harrelson, and it never McConaughey had it never happened. You're talking about a guy who's been acting since the early nineties, right? It's probably fifty movies, right? Right, yeah, and uh, it's really, really rare uh, today. Mm-hmm. Uh, there have been some really high profile replacements. Sure. They they usually come at the beginning of shooting, right? Uh, Spartacus, for example, is famously one week into shooting, and uh, Kirk Douglas uh, fired the director, and. Uh, Flew from Spain to Hollywood, met with Stanley Kubrick, who had just been fired from One Eye Jacks after one week with Marlon Brando. Right. And so he took over Spartacus. Marlon Brando decided to direct Mar- uh, One Eye Jacks himself. So uh, you do have situations like uh, Gone with Gone with the Wind and, and uh, The Wizard of Oz had three directors. Victor right. Fleming was one of them. They kind of had different assignments. Right. You do the musical scenes, you do the dramatic scenes. And, they kept going nature. even into the '60s, where you see like kind of the Robert Wise movies and stuff like that that had, yeah, a, you know, yeah, they gave a director credit for the the musical numbers. Sure, and yeah. in particular, yes, and Busby Berkeley, for example, and yeah. all of his musical numbers were directed by him, and they would have you know, Mervyn Lewis do do all the dramatic stuff in the Golden Age of Hollywood, which is roughly from 1922 to 1962, when Hollywood was a factory. And all the studios were factories, and they you had contracts, and you were paying people by the week. Replacing directors was very commonplace. Sure. And particularly during the blacklist, when some sometimes you just wake up one morning and, oh, shit, I can't hire him. Mm-hmm. Or that project that he was working on, he can't work on that project anymore. Uh, replacing directors was fairly commonplace. Mm-hmm. And in TV, even today, uh, it, it's not common, uh, but, it, but it does happen. Sure. You know. Um, in, in this particular circumstance, this, this is a really, it's almost like they weren't fired. And I, and I'll sh- tell you why they finished principal photography. Mm-hmm. This was kind of something that wasn't shared at the time. A lot of people think that, well, they reshot, uh, some of the film Yeah. or they reshot a lot of it. No, Ron Howard's name is on this film. So by director's guild law, 
70% or more of this film must be shot by Ron Howard. Period. Okay, right. So that's a Ron Howard movie. What I had heard subsequently after the McConaughey interview was every single frame of that fucking movie is Ron Howard's. He reshot the entire thing. Really? He didn't do inserts. That's it. Right. Um, he had a second unit do the inserts. Right. Under his direction. Okay. Uh, I could when I heard that I couldn't believe it because of the amount of material that they are just throwing away or wasting. Right. I mean, you're talking about special effects shots and all that. No, like the entire Kessel Run. Yeah. He he completely reconcepted that himself. Right. Right. I was shocked when I heard that. I right. just thought you're, they're just pulling in someone to handle the drama. Right. And then to go from there. No, Kathleen Kennedy apparently said, "Ron, take it." Right. And he took it. And uh, apparently there was a uh, there was a lot of confidence on set uh, that it, it's okay because everyone was so exceedingly happy that someone like Ron Howard, who had been in films right. since he was two, right, exactly, was was here and had known his way around every aspect of making a movie, right, uh, and is just in in reality every inch an expert that Spielberg is. And most of those actors had worked with Ron Howard on something. Oh, I'm sure that's true. Yeah, you think of Paul Bettany and A Beautiful Mind. If, oh, I didn't you know, try to remember Woody that. Well, Woody Harrelson was that TV. TV. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you had a lot of... Oh, my God, I didn't think about that. Yeah. Paul Bettany was in A Beautiful Mind. Yes, he was. Yeah. Um, now, Alden Ehrenreich, I thought was was almost like the perfect person to play Han. Sure. And and I would... this You know, this is the danger when you get into the situation... It's like uh, Bob Gale, the guy who wrote uh, Back to the Future mm. and, and co-produced it, if I remember correctly. Uh, you know, he said, like, the uh, he wants people to see what Eric Stoltz did on yeah. Back to the Future. Right. And he said, it's not it's not any slight to Eric. It's just that uh, it's just not what we wanted. Right. He did everything that we asked him to do. Sure. It's just not what we wanted out of the picture. Um if there, but people like Zemeckis, particularly, and Spielberg, don't want it to be seen because they don't want anybody making fun of Eric Stoltz. Right. Okay. Right. And so you've got this sort of uh, theory, uh, not theory, uh, uh, two sides of people should see what it would have become, and then people, and no, we really need to protect the actor. At this point, Eric Stoltz is in his fifties. I don't think he gives a shit. Right. Exactly. You know. He's got his... His career turned out okay. I mean, his, it yeah. would have been better had he been in three Back to the Future movies. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but, but it, it turned out okay. Probably would not have made as much money. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in, in that aspect, uh, when you look at uh, Aaron Reich, I was really... I got to say, man, I was expecting more. Mm-hmm. And particularly when you have Han moments like... Harrison Ford has a more baritone voice. Right. And particularly when he's flustered. And, hey, wait a minute. And, you know, everything drops down. And when he gets flustered into an argument or something, he starts yeah. shouting at people. And Aaron Rock has a higher tone voice. Right. And I don't want to be nitpicky. But, you know, Ewan McGregor, mm-hmm. who's from Glasgow. Right spent months learning Cockney. Right. And 
I think he did a pretty phenomenal job. Absolutely. Like, like you, you almost, if you played some random lines side by side, and you know, I, I think you would, you would struggle to say which is Alec Guinness, which is Ewan McGregor. Yeah. The cadence. Yes. was perfect. So yeah, I, I kind of get where you're going with that is, is maybe there's a couple of things that, that he got the cadence right. But some other ones, you're right. I think it was a little higher, readier voice, almost kind of like a young Leonardo DiCaprio, kind of that 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 higher kind of vocal timber. Um, so, so yeah, it wasn't quite a match. Um, I think what I was willing to overlook from that standpoint is, is there was enough of a physical resemblance. But I thought this was the most interesting Han Solo we've seen since maybe um, A New Hope. You know, because we kind of get to see the scoundrel Han Solo. Yeah. Um, his his turn turns kind of quicker in in uh, you know the second half of Empire, where obviously you know he's <laughs> he's captured and he's put in carbonite, and and then I don't think he has a whole lot to do in in Return of the Jedi, and then you know, we see him in um, you know the Force Awakens. He's a much older uh, Han Solo. So I I almost wanted to see more stories of that young scoundrel, that young smuggler. And so I think I was kind of overwilling or willing to overlook some of those things that didn't quite line up just because I think, hey, that's an that's an interesting story of a character that I always loved that I want to see more of at that time of their life. Um, I'd, I'd be perfectly willing to see another solo. Oh, I'd love to. I'd love I, to. I think that the, I'm, I very much disagree with the the idea that the franchise is in trouble. Yeah, I don't think that that at all. And um you know, I think we're we're kind of nitpicking Alden's performance. I, I think his, his greatest sin is he was upstaged by Donald Glover as the Lando. <laughs> Man, that was some some great casting. He came on hard. Didn't I he? I loved his Lando. And the minute you heard his name, you were rubbing your hands together, going, "Absolutely perfect. Yes. This is gonna be great." Yes. yes. So I I would love to see more with those two, and you know, of course, we we, we don't miss a beat, kind of with the transition between Chewbacca's. I think it was a Junus or whatever his name is. I think he'd, he'd done this one before he started doing the the new saga. I think that's mm-hmm. when the, the the handoff happened from Peter Mayhew because he was probably already right, right, about You're seventy right. around that time. Um, mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I mean, I'd love to see more with with the, those three mm-hmm. uh, if there's more stories to be told. Um, now, there were some interesting things that that kind of came out of Solo. Um, one of the things, and, and I'm sure we could find the official. Star Wars answer to this, but what what is the timeline here? So, so like compared to the Battle of Yavin, which I realize for a lot of points for a lot of people is kind of like the the BC AD delineation is is everything in Star Wars is told before Battle right. of Yavin or after Battle of Yavin. Well, considering Han's age and Harrison Ford looks to be late thirties, early forties uh, by the Battle of Yavin, you're you're talking if he's in Solo if he's He's in his early 20s, is what right. it looks like. So you're like 20 years before the Battle of Yavin. Okay. So this looks like it's uh, shortly after uh, the fall of Coruscant. Okay. Um, shortly after the Emperor. It would sense. have to be because right. there is an empire. Right. Right. So, so I mean, we think that, uh, you know, Order 66 has to have happened. Palpatine has to have risen from Chancellor to Emperor. Yeah. Um, so there is an empire. So we, we figure it, it's got to be between episode three and episode four yes um, yes maybe halfway in between or something like that that's yeah that seems acceptable to me okay uh, considering luke is born in episode three and then he's about 1920 in, right. in episode four and i think we all accept that han solo is probably 
seven to ten years older than Luke Skywalker? Oh, uh, if if Luke is twenty, uh, like in yeah, in, in A New Hope, I guess he. Well, yeah, in A New Hope, I guess he'd be mid thirties, mm-hmm. right? I guess by Jedi, it looks like he's about forty. Mm-hmm. But yeah, by New Hope, so yeah, you are looking at like a fifteen-year, okay, time span. Yeah. Gotcha. So with that, and I don't know if you know where I'm going with this. No. You know, of course, we want to jump all the way to the end of Solo. Mm-hmm. Um, but something that I think is really interesting to me is at the end of Solo, you bring back Darth Maul. Uh, right. And so, you know, here we have Darth Maul, who obviously died at the beginning of Episode One, um, which would would have been. 20 plus years before 30 plus years before right 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 um and and here he is alive again now i i know from having watched clone wars they kind of resurrected him a little bit but you've mentioned that that you didn't watch those so was that like a what the fuck moment for you kind of seeing darth maul come back it was uh i was really i was really surprised to see him um and i thought it was the perfect setup for another solo movie yeah so i I was really disappointed when they said we're stopping right. all Star Because it did seem like a setup. It did, and, and I would be interested in seeing that. Absolutely. Because where, where I think they were going was, hey, I heard about this job on Tatooine. You know, we know when A New Hope <laughs> starts that Han Solo's on the run from Jabba the Hutt because he did a job for Jabba right. and, and so dumped his cargo. what is that job? Right. What went wrong? That's a perfect setup for another, that I really want to see. Um, that is a perfect set, but I guess they're they're, they're not going to do that. I don't I don't know. Maybe they maybe they will. I I think that goes back to whether or not Solo was enough of, enough of a success for well, the studio to put two hundred million dollars towards a new one. That's well, I mean that. So therein lies the problem: is that Solo had a budget of I think about one hundred and one or one hundred and two million, and so if you're going to reshoot it, then instantly you're in the two hundred and three, two hundred and four million dollar. Run now. All of the actors did not make double salary. No. Um, the The surprising thing to me um, was the the actors' time. So, according to to Woody Harrelson, um, he works. He was very clear about this. So, I'm not extrapolating anything. He works six months a year, and then he takes six months off. Mm-hmm. And he has a house in Hawaii, almost like an island. And he and his family go there, and they don't do fuck all for six mm-hmm. months. And that's the deal and the bargain that he's made with his family. Right. So uh, when Solo happened, they had a six-month shoot. And sometimes he can work in a whole TV series, or he can work in two or three movies in that six months. Right. And when that six months is up, he's on that fucking island. Right. In this aspect, his six months was taken up entirely by Solo, which right. he has done several times before. Normally, they block off some time for reshoots, mm-hmm. maybe a week or two. Um, Padme escaping the droid factory in Attack of the Clones yeah. was entirely done in London on reshoots. Okay. Uh, in, in a span of like two or three days. Right. So that's completely normal. Um, his time was up. He was going to go to the island. They fired the director. Kathleen Kennedy told Woody Harrelson, look. I know that your time is up. We've got to finish this movie. Mm-hmm. So Woody Harrelson had a choice. He could work a year for the same money, or he could go back to the island. Right. And to him, the part was more important. Right. So he stayed and finished the movie. 
which I have to say, if you think about it, he's paid for the year anyway. Sure. Right? So, you know, of course he'd rather be on a beach. Right. It would have been a tremendous cost to replace him. Right. And replacing a lot of the cast that late in the game, like, that makes me want to cry. Right. You're putting producers in that situation. Yeah, exactly. Now, having said that, Ron Howard's now directing a solo movie. I'm sure there's plenty of people putting their hands up. Right. You know, and so it'll do it for scale, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah Although sure. I'm sure the back end and the merchandising deals, yeah, not yeah, the, insignificant. The likeness fees, yeah, sure, those are fine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or the chance, just the chance to work with Ron Howard. Yeah, uh, but he worked for that full year, and then he had a six month gig lined up. So he effectively he worked eighteen months in a row. Right. And he reshot the same movie twice. Right. And he he did say that the entire stone uh, tone and style of the film completely changed under under Ron. Right. And uh, people were very good about uh, not saying, well, we did this before. And we did, they didn't even bring that up. Right. He, he had his own idea about uh, what to do. Yeah. Um, loved Woody. Uh, loved Tandy Newton. Yeah. Um, I liked their chemistry a lot. Right. I felt, quite honestly, that the film was rushed. Yeah. Like, as you're watching it, it just seems the pace is rushed. I can see that. And unfortunately, because we know the backstory, right. We're thinking it feels rushed because they were rushed. Right. And I think that's unfortunate. I think if they had slowed the pacing down, it would have been better. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And I think this also kind of speaks to maybe the fact that we're willing to give solo a pass. And I don't know if that comes from us maybe just being a little bit more generous with our critique with this particular movie or with the fact that we we, we want another one to happen. Um, so we're trying to will that to happen with, with, with our uh, withholding of critiques. But yeah, I think it kind of speaks to the type of a Star Wars story that we want to see. I think we want to see something in the universe. But I think it's going to be a love-hate with a kind of a continuation of the saga. Um, whereas, you know, I, I have a feeling that you know, every hardcore Star Wars fan that I've talked to, I mean, has probably mixed feelings about episodes seven, eight, and nine. Mm -hmm. You know, probably maybe at least half positive, but mixed feelings. So I, I think that there was some some tempered disappointment. And some of that comes from just, you know, we, we build this thing up because, you know, episodes four, five, and six mean so much to us. Um, but I think things like Rogue One and Solo kind of fit in there a little bit easier because... You know, it's just kind of a one-off. It's kind of a contained story. We kind of know where it fits in the whole overarching saga, but we don't know what's going to happen in the story, really. And so that's why I have a feeling that if we do expand the Star Wars saga to maybe start a new trilogy or even a new one-off movie with Rey and Finn and Poe, we're going to be a lot less harsh on it than if we were to see a trilogy continuing the Skywalker saga, as we could see. I, I don't know. How, how do you feel kind of about maybe... Um, solo as a one-off um either as a solo story or just as kind of the lucasfilm's way of filling in the gaps with a standalone story those are good questions uh well i don't want solo to be a, a, a one-off right um now i'm not i'm not giving solo a pass i don't feel like i'm giving solo a pass because like i was saying the pacing of the movie sure um that weird sloth-like gangster in the beginning. Yeah. Um, 
not big on that. <laughs> um, the speeder chase looked like it was going about idle. Yeah. Maybe in first gear. Right. Just didn't seem like a speeder chase. Right. For something that's called a speeder chase, didn't look like it was moving very fast. Right. Uh, I could t- tell that even in the trailer. Sure. Like, well, the other thing was, um, uh, I, I like Paul Bettany. Yeah. And and as an actor, and I thought it was very interesting what they did to his face every time yeah. he got angry. But he was recast, mm. so they had a they had a different actor on set, and apparently they had it was a, a CGI replacement that they were working on. Right. And that was going to be the villain, and obviously all of that was cut. That actor was let go, and and Ron Howard picked up the phone and got got Paul Bettany. Right. Um, I think that was an adequate replacement. Sure. I, I, I don't think that that was a super replacement. Right. I, I think they could have gone much bigger, much wider, much better with the villain. Right. Uh, again, nothing to Paul Bettany. And of course we all have to remember that the constraints of time and what right. they were dealing with. Right. I think, uh, they were all doing the best they could with a bad situation. So in your perfect solo movie, um, you know, kind of what changed like a non rushed solo movie, maybe yeah. with Ron Howard, you know, what were some of the things that, that maybe you would have liked to have seen? Oh, I, I w- okay. Retrospectively, what I would like to have seen is a, a struggle against Jabba mm-hmm. in which they, they come out on top. Yeah. And Jabba's got to grudgingly recognize that this is his best smuggler. Right. And Han wor- worms his way into working for his syndicate. Yeah. Or, or the huts. The right. Hutties, right. That would have. That was not a concept. I don't like to go into movies with uh, ideas. I like the film to tell me sure. what it wants to show me, and sometimes those preconceptions can damage a film because uh, a lot of times, well, not a lot of times, in a minority of times, you have a better idea, and you think, why, why didn't they? This seems so obvious to me. Why didn't they do it? Mm-hmm. I try not to do that. And so I didn't in Solo's case. So when I go in with a blank slate and it's not filled very well, I get very critical. Sure. You know, and so it's also a hard argument. I mean, can you really argue with Paul Bettany in the role that he had? Like, he's a great actor. Sure. They had a great concept of showing his power and anger. And uh, I thought the character was very original in, in the Star Wars universe. Sure. Absolutely. So it's it's a hard argument to make, but could they have made a better villain? Yeah, I think they could have. You know, I think what's appealing to a lot of Star Wars fans about kind of these crime syndicates and about this whole underworld is you, there's relatively few humans in there. Yeah. And, and so maybe that's that's kind of appeals to us is the, hey, show us something new element. Whereas Solo, I mean, you had Chewbacca. Yeah. Um, and you had the, uh, you had Lando's droid. Um, but, but there it was pretty much mostly people. Right. I guess you had the one Doug, I guess the the, the John Favreau character, right? Didn't he voice yeah, that? The, the six armed guy. Yeah. yeah. So so I, that was something that I was really upset about because uh, I felt that we we lost a, a character that I was really invested in. Yeah. He seemed like a really neat guy, and I was actually thinking I liked the way that he was flying around using all these. I was really yeah. It was a unique situation, and like General Grievous, he was gone. Right. Right, exactly. In the span of no time, he was gonna. Right, right. So, so, so maybe we want to see it, and in that, you know, kind of maybe bringing in the huts 
you know, again, does kind of bring us into all these different creatures. You know, not just yes. the huts, but they always ran with all different types of aliens and That's stuff right. like that. So, so maybe that would be more interesting. With a diverse cast. Yeah. So, um, the the last thing that, that I have, actually, is I left the theater. You're going to laugh at this. <laughs> um, I left the theater, and I asked my wife, who played the girl? Yeah. She was really good. Yeah. And she said, well, that's Amelia Clark. And I said, laughingly to all of our audience, who the fuck is Amelia Clark? Right, right. You were the only guy in the world that had the, been watching. <laughs> I was literally the only guy in the world, I think. Yeah. And, uh, every time I watch it, she shines. She, she does. really pops out of the screen. And uh, I watched it once when, when I got it on digital, because mm-hmm. I have it on digital. Yeah. And just look, they, they sort of, sometimes they teach you this in film school. Watch the same movie several times and then watch for different things for the entire film. Unfortunately, I took this film class once and, and I did this with the movie The Graduate, mm-hmm. which basically just soiled that movie for me for all the time. Oh, no. So one Love of the things they, they did was uh, you got to watch this movie, and the, the only thing that we're going to talk about is the lighting. Yeah. So you have to look at the lighting in every scene, and then you had to write a paper on it. And then the next one was uh, uh, set design. And then the next one was acting. And then the next one was cinematography. Where physically is the camera moving on every set? We had to map it out. Right. And so there was one time where I, I just saw her in one scene, and I looked at her blocking. And I thought, wow, that, and I rewatched the scene. I can't, I'm sorry, I can't remember which one it is. And so then I watched the rest of the film, just looking at how she moved in space. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that that's, now that's the director. That's Howard saying, you go here and you do this. So she's only following his instruction. Right. But I have to say, her execution of his direction and block, in terms of blocking was just amazing. Yeah. It reminded me a lot of, uh, uh, well, not in terms of style to Kurosawa, but how specific Kurosawa was sure. in where characters were in, in the three-dimensional space. Right, right. And and it's weird that that really comes out, uh, but I, it really, really surprised me, and I just instantly became a fan. Yeah, I did too. I, I was watching Game of Thrones at the time, so I, I knew who she was, and... Um... I know it's probably blasphemy to say. I think in, in the nerd universe, I thought she was ten times more attractive as Kira, as, as so she did was I. in, in, so in did as Daenerys yeah. Targaryen. Um, you know, and, and I just think she's just a lot more interesting mm-hmm. in in this role uh, as, as Kira. So yeah, I I loved her in this movie. It's really one of the favorite things I, I've seen her in. Yeah, um, well, this, that's one role. of my problems with Game of Thrones is is her character uh, Daenerys Targaryen is very one dimensional. I mean, this yeah. is her quest, and that's what she's going to do, and get out of my way and and that's it and this this person was very conflicted yeah conflicted about han conflicted about who she was working for uh, her loyalties were conflicted yeah you know uh, the only thing that she knew that she didn't like was the empire right you know and and uh you know i empathize with that we all have those sure sure sided struggles right so uh, my my closing story with amelia clark is uh, did you make the last Comic Palooza here in Houston? No. Did you have you ever gone? Have not. No. God damn it, Paul. I know. I'm waiting for my son to be old enough to <laughs> take him and, and kind of make that worth it for me. But uh, we'll get there. That man. Okay. So when I moved, I moved down in 2016. So did we go? So we went. In, we went in 2017. 
my I took my son in 2017 mm-hmm. Comic Uh I had a blast, had an absolute blast. Uh, 2018, it's it's held in it's it's held Memorial Day weekend mm-hmm. every year, uh, except for this year it was canceled. 2018 comes, January comes. There's no one signed up as far as celebrities. And this was a big deal because in 2017, when I took my son, we saw Tom Holland mm. and Kristen Ritter. Okay. So, you know, my, my son tells people this day, you know, I, I breathe the same air as Tom Holland. Oh, my and daughter loves Tom Holland. Gifted yes. actor. Yes. Yeah. And talked about Spider-Man and RDJ and the whole thing. My, my son just had stars in his eyes. Right. Then after two seasons of Jessica Jones and one season of The Defenders, he got to see uh, Kristen Ritter. Yeah. He, he'd also seen uh, Breaking Bad. Kristen right. Ritter's in season two, I think. So to him, it was like, wow, this is yeah, this yeah. Is actually now we weren't like right next to him, and we didn't do the meet and greet, but it was it was that type of fascination, and that star power uh, says a lot. Now that we are, let's just face it, the bastard child of mm-hmm. pretty much every exhibition circuit known to man in the United States. Right. Uh, there's I don't know if you're familiar with this. You probably are. Uh, there's three cities in the United States. Yeah. Uh, New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago. Right. And all the rest is what we call flyover. Right. Fuck you. Right. And uh, that image and that idea uh, of our our heartland uh, is dismissive and insulting. Sure. Uh, for, For a city of... Four and a half, five million people. It's almost seven in the metro area. So, yeah. Right, yeah. And uh, who are you but a bunch of hicks? Yeah. And uncultured people um, who, thank goodness we make money off of you, but we're not too interested in, right, in right. doing X. So um, even when I was a kid, when we had the Star Trek conventions here, yeah, you know, you knew who wasn't going to show up. <laughs> right, right. And... And so January came, February came, March came, and I kept waiting, and they weren't making a whole lot of announcements. Right. There were some small sign-ups, and I, I just thought, well, I'm, I'm not going to go. Right. Uh, my son definitely said, I don't care who's right. coming. I'm, I'm going back to Comic Palooza, and he, he took a girl, and he was fine. Um, but I will tell, I, I will tell you. Uh, they announced Amelia Clark was going to Comic Palooza, mm-hmm. and you would have thought the city had just exploded. Oh, I imagine it was it was like the announcing of the Super Bowl. Sure, sure. And uh, she, the week that she signed, there was a flurry of activity. Oh, from I'm sure. Then until about two weeks before Comic Palooza, of everybody signing on. Right, and I know what it was. A lot of people, you you might say, well, you know, uh, they were holding the news, like they had already signed those people. They were holding the news, and that's not what that does make does not make any sense at all to me. What right. happened was she signed, and then everyone all of a sudden discovered that there was this little place on the map called Houston, right? That Amelia Clark was going to, mm-hmm. and then I have to be there because she's on that circuit. Sure, sure. And so I'd like to think. Amelia Clark for being fine actress. Yes. Actress, not in an insulting way that I use it, just a female actor. Sure. Uh, who did a great job in solo. Mm-hmm. Probably my favorite role in solo, actually. Yeah. 
And uh, thank you for for bringing a little bit of life to the backwater that we call our <laughs> our larger metro area. Indeed, indeed, well <laughs> said. So let me ask you kind of this one last thing to close. Yeah. You know, we we agree that solo. We we'd love to see more stories with with solo Kira, um, you know, Chewie and, and Lando. Um, we agree that Rogue One was a success. Let's make you the CEO of Lucasfilm, and let's say there's a story that you'd like to see is from the Star Wars saga that we know happens from reference um, or from context that you'd like to see have a standalone feature film. Well, I, I don't think that you have to search that hard. I think you can look at their existing projects and just greenlight them. Um, a second solo film. Um, I, I don't see why that couldn't be a trilogy. Sure. Um, the, Nothing hooked onto Rogue One, but replicating the Rogue One. Like, remember in the beginning of Jedi, Mon Mothma has this very dire speech. Many Bothans died. Yes. Bringing us, like, I want to know that story. Bringing right. us this information. I would like to know that story. Um, the one that excites me the most mm -hmm. is the Obi-Wan series. Yeah. That was canceled due to the entire... Uh, freak out after yeah. Solo, uh, which Ewan McGregor apparently had signed on for. Right. And was, yes, I will absolutely play, play Obi-Wan. And if it follows the comics, Obi-Wan is, is a guy who's um, incognito on Tatooine. But shit happens on Tatooine. Shit, a lot of shit happens on Tatooine. Yeah. With the Huts, with the Empire. Uh, and uh, I am insanely interested yeah, and how McGregor brings back that role. There's also the aspect of we we all agree the prequels were largely a failure, right? But everyone wants you and McGregor back. Yes, that should tell you something. Absolutely about the success of him in that role. Yes, right. And I remember when they announced it at the time in 1999, and everybody was just like, "Oh, this is perfect." Yeah, this is perfect. Yeah, and they didn't talk about train spotting, and they didn't talk about shallow grave. And they didn't talk about that weird movie he made, uh, Ordinary Life or an Unordinary World. Oh, the was. Cameron Diaz one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lifeless Ordinary. Lifeless Ordinary. Yeah. yeah. They didn't talk about that at all. And all, all they could talk about was Ewan McGregor's. Right. Of I, I, think, I think more than anything else, that's what I'd like to see. Yeah. And the existing plans. And I don't, I disagree with the idea that, that it's done, that it's over. Yeah. I don't think it's done. I don't think it's over. Right. It, it can't be. Um, how good is it going to be? Um, I think they've had two hits. Uh, Rogue One and The Mandarin. Mandalorian. Mm -hmm. Mandalorian, right. And they've had two two misses. Uh, Solo and uh, the trilogy, the second trilogy. And I'd, I'd say don't, don't give up. Just because we're going to be critical. Just because right. some of us aren't going to like them. Don't give up, right? Because there there can be huge payoff. Absolutely, absolutely. And it is an invigorating story. Yeah, I think so. What about you? What would you like to see? You know, I you, you kind of touched on it. It's like I, I loved the underworld. Uh, I love the crime syndicates. Um, that could definitely tie into a solo story. It could tie into a Boba Fett story. Um, you know, but I think the criminal underworld here, because there's so many syndicates that don't get screen time in the saga. Um, but that maybe show up in some of the, the cartoons or show up in some of the books. Um, and so 
there's always stuff going on. It's a, a really interesting cast of characters and a lot of different species. Open it up. I want to see how big this universe is. I want to see creatures of all shapes, sizes, and um, you know that that's what what drew me in as I was kind of watching Star Wars and walking into the most Eisley Cantina and you know Obi Wan, Han, Luke, and the bartender, the only humans in that place. Right. Uh, and yet all these stories have been you know largely humans and humanoids. Um, so I want to see some of these other people kind of moving around and how they fight and how they shoot and. Uh, how they speak and how they interact. So I, I think to me that would be really appealing. And you know, you've got some stuff to work with. You can do a kind of that young Han Solo, that young Lando in there. You can do Boba Fett. Any actor can play Boba Fett in a mask, you know, and talk a kind of vaguely Australian and kind of get that uh, that, that cadence down. Um, so I, I think that's the part of the world that that I, I'm always left wanting more with. Um, I think we've filled in a lot of the gaps as far as the rebellion. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah, like you said, I, I'd, I'd support how the Bothans got the plans of the second Death Star. Um, you know, I don't know if they would commit the resources to essentially build the exact same movie as Rogue One, right. uh, which is what it would be. Um, but uh, I'd go see it; it'd be fun but, for sure. Uh, but yeah, I think that's that's kind of what I'd like to see. Absolutely. Anything else you want to add? No, no. I think that's. Uh, that's good. I've I've enjoyed uh, talking about these these two movies. That's great. Uh, we we think we hold them to different standards <laughs> than um, you know the saga or, or the prequels or the sequels, um, but uh, but we sure enjoy them. Maybe that's unfair. Maybe it is. Maybe it is that we we've got different standards here. We're a little bit more permissible. I I, I certainly think that the expectations are lower. Um, you know, I know we know going into Rogue One that it's going to end with the plans being stolen. Uh, we know with Solo that Han Solo and Lando and Chewbacca are going to survive. Um, so I think our, maybe our expectations are a little tempered uh, with those, which is maybe why we want to cut them a little bit more slack. But uh, uh, yeah, do enjoy them. Well, that's I mean that's why Rogue One out of out of the whole group is is so special to me. It's um, it's Solo is more traditional in terms of yeah. the films and. And Felicity Jones and Jen Jen Ursa, I should say, the character is a, such a beautiful character. Right. And uh, aesthetically, uh, obviously, Felicity Jones is very beautiful, but her character is a survivor. Yeah. And she's fought so hard her whole life. Right. Um, no matter what her circumstances, and the idea that she's not going to escape from that is painful to us. Sure. And that's not how the world should work, but we know. We know that's indeed sometimes for a lot of people in this world, a lot of times. Right. That's that is how the, the world works. Right. And uh, like like Empire, I think that's a reminder to us that maybe there's not uh, a happy ending at all times. Right. Uh, but maybe there is light at the end of the tunnel. Sure. The plans get into Leia's hands. Right. You, right. you lose the battle, but you contribute to winning the war. Right. Right. Definitely. And I think as a message I don't, from Star Wars, I don't think that's bad. No, no, no. I think that's positive. Sure. Thanks for listening to Paul and I work through our feelings on Rogue One and Solo. He'll be back to discuss a famous talking point among cinephiles. What the hell are the voters of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences thinking? You can get the Super 70 Podcast anywhere you find podcasts. And if you can't find it, let me know at thatdylandavis at gmail.com. 
You can also find me on Twitter, at ThatDylanDavis. As for me, my books, and my blog, you can find it all at ThatDylanDavis.com. That's where I also post film reviews. I'm Dylan Davis, and who the hell knows where you'll see me next time.